let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, face the tough call that Jesus makes in this parable of the Ten Meaners, uh, please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can find your grace and goodness and so that we can trust in you joyfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was a good call. I don't know who said it. I think it was Anne. When uh, we heard the gospel reading from Luke chapter 19 today, 11 to 27, and Anne said, that's a bit tough when the king says, as for those enemies of mine, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow. Wow. What is going on here? How, how are you going to preach that one, Pastor Nathan? As we get into this, I, want, I think that it will help for us to think of this parable as literature. Now, my daughter Sylvia studied lit in year 12, and uh, she really enjoyed deeply getting into um, some complex texts. But after her last exam was finished, which was actually her literature exam, uh, I said to her, what are you going to do now, Sylv? And she said, I'm going to read some books for pleasure. I'm not going to have to analyze them. I'm just going to be able to read them and enjoy them. But if we think of this parable of Jesus as literature with nuance and complexity and not necessarily a one-to-one explanation or uh, equivalence between the parable and Jesus or any other character, then I think that that will really help us. And I'd like to look at this parable as literature, wonderful oral storytelling under three headings. Firstly, the tragedy of the rejected king. Secondly, the tragedy of the fearful servant. And thirdly, the joy of faithful service. When you think of great literature like Shakespeare or uh, anything else really, you know that there is a truth that is being conveyed without the person who is writing this necessarily condoning what they are writing about. For instance, if we watch uh, Romeo and Juliet, we can appreciate the power of the literature without saying, well, Shakespeare was obviously advocating suicide, right? There's complexity and nuance there uh, that conveys a truth about the human condition without the author or the speaker necessarily condoning everything within the story. First of all, we have the tragedy of the rejected king. And this, I'll I'll read some of the verses from Luke 19 because there's several different things going on here in Jesus' parable. Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 15 and verse 27. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, that sounds weird, first of all, to us. Uh, What's going on here? A man of noble birth is going to a distant country to have himself appointed king? Um, Is there some kind of election thing happening? What, What is going on? Interestingly, the kings of Israel, because they were basically puppet kings under the Romans, had to go to Rome to be appointed king. They weren't appointed king by their own people. They were appointed king by the occupying force 
the Romans. So there's actually historical precedent for exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Herod and Archelaus both went to Rome to be appointed king and then to return. So let me continue um, from uh, verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. We think that this may have happened with one of the Herods or with Archelaus, who were cruel, despotic tyrants. We believe that the, the Jewish people did not want Herod or Archelaus to be king. And then at the end of the parable, we come back to this tragedy of the rejected king. In verse 27, the verse that Anne said, that's a bit tough. Jesus has the king saying, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The tragedy of the rejected king is that there are people who do not want Jesus to be boss of their life. They would like to have nothing to do with Jesus. They don't want this man to be king. And we see this happening in just a few chapters forward in Luke as Jesus comes into Jerusalem triumphantly, but then is the people turn on him and they reject him and they ask the Romans to crucify him. And unfortunately, in our culture, in our society, around the world today, there are many people who simply don't want Jesus to be their king. They want to be their own boss. And in fact, uh, Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist from the 20th century, uh, said that the main reason that he was not a Christian was not because of evidence against Christianity, but that he knew that if he became a Christian, he would have to change his life. It would change his lifestyle and his choices. And he didn't want to lose that autonomy. Now, there's nuance here because Jesus is not entirely like the king in the parable. In fact, in some ways, he's quite different. Jesus takes no pleasure in people going to their own destruction. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, we hear the Lord say, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that they would turn from their evil ways and live. Jesus doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. And in fact, as he is coming into Jerusalem in this very chapter, in the last week of his life before his death, here in Luke 19, um, you may see in your Bible on page 1053, um, if you're in the Pew Bible, a heading that says Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And Jesus comes to the hill that overlooks Jerusalem. And in verse 41, we see this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Can you see the compassion that Jesus has for Jerusalem? He doesn't want the city to be destroyed. He longs for it to know what would bring peace. 
But Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And these words were literally fulfilled in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. The rejected king weeps over Jerusalem. He has deep compassion for the people who will be his enemies. And in Luke 23, we see the rejected and suffering King Jesus on the cross with the sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Well, this sentence from the parable, as Anne rightly said, is a bit tough. It's very tough. Jesus makes it unequivocally clear that how you respond to him will determine your eternal destiny. How you respond to Jesus, the suffering and rejected king, will be the thing that decides what your eternity will be like. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author of the 20th century, said, in the end, there are only two types of people in the world. Those to whom God says, sorry, those who say to God, your will be done. In other words, those who are willing to let Jesus be king, willing to let God be the boss of their life. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. If we consistently and constantly reject God and his reign over us through Jesus, God will in the end say, if that's what you want, if you want to have nothing to do with me, I wish that you would not do that, but that is what I will give to you. You will be able to go and have nothing to do with me throughout all eternity. So first of all, we have the tragedy of the rejected king. And that rejected king is Jesus. And the way that we respond to him will decide what happens to us. But secondly, there's another tragedy in this piece of literature, and it's the tragedy of the fearful servant. And let me read from Luke 19, verse 20 to 26. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. Now, a mina was a gold coin. It was worth about a month's wages. So it's not a small amount of money. It's a, it's a reasonable amount. I wouldn't mind if someone gave me a mina and said, here, this is yours. That would be really cool. Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I have not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Imagine this. Um, let me see. Uh, Charlotte. Let's say I come to you and I go, Charlotte, here's three months' wages. Let's say, um, give me a figure, people. Uh, quarter, of a, quarter of a year's wages. Let's say 20 grand, if you're lucky. Okay, here's 20 grand. And Charlotte says, Nathan, you're such a hard man. 
You're so stingy. You're so mean. You take out what you haven't um, put in and you, and you reap what you didn't sow. Gee, you're, you're a tough guy. Is that an appropriate response? <laughs> no, of course it's not. And so this is the tragedy of the fearful servant. He has a completely wrong view of the generous master. He thinks that the master is hard and tough and, and is going to get what he can out of people. And often, even as Christians, and David Chupin said it in his video, we often, unfortunately, have this idea that God is not generous but harsh. That God is out to get what he can from us, um, to, to ex extort something from us, to be a harsh and unloving judge. But God is not harsh, but in fact, deeply loving and generous. But this fear of God, this terror of God, may come because of bad experiences that we have had with the church or with other Christians. It may, be, may come to us because of our family background. Maybe we didn't get on well with our father or mother and we project that kind of harshness and bad relationship onto God. Or it may come because of our own shame. We might be ashamed and embarrassed about our own goodness before God. Just this week, I spoke to a wonderful woman of God. Um, and she said, she talked of how she had gone for years through this terror of God. She had had a divorce, and in the Christian denomination in which she was um, w attending worship, that was kind of the worst thing that anyone could do. And she felt a deep sense of shame that she had let God down, that, that she had done the wrong thing, the worst thing. And she said to me that she read the Bible, and she read the Bible, she searched through God's word, and it all came across as judgment. It all came across as God's harsh demands on her because of her shame. But she said, until the moment that God's grace broke through to her, and she understood that God is not this harsh and selfish tyrant, but a loving and generous and gracious God. And she said it, it felt like being born again. She said that the word of God came alive to her and she could suddenly see in it God's grace and his love and his generosity. You see, we can be Christians who have faith in God, but have a distorted view of what God is actually like. And this kind of fearful faith will make us afraid and anxious and also unfruitful. We're not going to be doing good work for God if we're afraid of him all the time. Seeing God in this light will weaken our faith and rob our joy. And that's the tragedy of the fearful servant. And if you are in any way like that today, I pray that God would break through with his grace and show you that he's not a harsh master, but a loving and generous, compassionate and gracious father. But this piece of literature from Jesus is not all tragedy. There is joy here too. There's good news story. There's, it, it's a happy ending. 
And that is the joy of faithful service. And let me read the the verses that go along with that. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 19, verse 15 to 19. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one said, came and said, Sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Pretty good return on investment, Tim. 1,000%. Yep, that, that'd be a... Uh, Anyone would be happy with that? Yep. The second, uh, the, well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. You see, these servants believe that their master is actually generous. They believe that he's entrusted them with something precious that they can actually use that they can daringly and boldly use for their master to gain even more. The joy of faithful service is about trusting that God really has given us gracious gifts, that God really is generous with us, and that he's not demanding stuff of us, but wanting to give stuff to us so that we can use it for his good and the good of others. The joy of faithful service has a bold faith. It dares to take what the master has given and to use it for what is good. And the master rejoices. He says, well done, faithful servant. Well done, faithful servant. How I long to hear those words from God. And I hope that one day that I will. And I hope that one day you will. Each of you with the individual and unique gifts that God has given you, that one day God will say, well done, faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Here is much more. To truly believe that God gives us genuine gifts, that we have a genuine sense of stewardship for the generous king will lead us into the joy of faithful service. And that, causes me to ask you to reflect, what gifts have you been given for faithful service? What gifts have you been given for faithful service? Because everyone in this generous master's kingdom has been given gifts so that they can experience the joy of faithful service. Each one of us has a life that is meant to be used for the good of others. God values every life he has made, every one of us. And God seeks from each of us and from all of us our unique contribution towards the advancement of his work in this world. And God's cause thrives when everyone contributes to it. And as the king says to the master, the more we contribute, the more we are able to contribute because God multiplies with blessing whatever we do for him. It is a tough parable in the end, isn't it? But it's also a good one. My prayer and my hope for you today is that you won't fall into the tragedy of rejecting the King, Jesus, in his grace and forgiveness. That you won't fall into the tragedy of the fearful servant who fears his master rather than seeing him as gracious and compassionate. But that you will find the joy of faithful service that you will use well your gift 
for the good of others and the glory of God, and that you will hear the voice of the Master say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Come and share your Master's happiness, and here is much more. Because as Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, that's little faith, even what they have will be taken away. So may God increase your faith and your joy in his faithful service. In Jesus' name. Amen.